If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our study in the Beatitudes at the beginning here of the Sermon on the Mount. Just so you kind of know where we're heading, this we will cover uh, the last two Beatitudes this afternoon. Um, I feel compelled to go back and look at them as a whole, maybe one more time, having meditated on them for a little bit. I think that would be healthy for us. And so that's my plan for next week. It could change, but that's the plan for now, is to look at them as a whole once more and just uh, continue to sit in these things. We've said, for the most part, that these sermons have been more meditations on these truths because they are just something that has to sink down in our hearts, it feels like. And so I think it would be healthy to to look at 1 through 12 as a whole once more. And so we'll plan to do that. Um, and then the following Sunday, we will look at verses 13 through 16. I think 1 through 16 form the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And so it'd be good to to get those verses included there. I think that's the working out of the Beatitudes within the culture at large. So um, we'll be a couple more weeks at least in Matthew. And that gets us to October. And the first Sunday in October, we finally convinced John Mark to come up here and preach for us. So Mark is going to preach for us um, from First Samuel. He will preach the sermon that he is going to preach when he comes to the Philippines in, um, in November. And so he'll get a practice run. And it'll also be a great opportunity for you to uh, participate in what we are going to go and do. So he will preach that sermon here the first uh, Sunday in October, and then he'll preach it on a Monday in November uh, in Rojas, Isabella. So looking forward to that. Be praying for, for Mark as he prepares. But for this morning, we are in Matthew 5. Uh, there are some things that are universally recognized as not fun. Uh, if you call me tomorrow and ask what I'm up to, and I say, well, I'm heading over to the DMV to renew my driver's license, uh, you're not going to say, sounds like a great time, unless you're being sarcastic, uh, which I could see many of you doing. Um, similarly, if you told me that you had a root canal on Friday, Joshua can attest to this from recent experience, I would not be jealous of you. And if someone here said that their air conditioning went out right here in this sort of hopefully last heat wave of the summer, uh, none of us would want to trade places with them, I don't think. We've said that these Beatitudes are each a surprising description of the flourishing life that we are called to live as members of God's kingdom. And these final two that are centered around persecution are probably the most surprising, the most counterintuitive, the, the strangest, and the most shocking, because they seem to call blessed what we would naturally say is not a blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, that could run a close second, I think, to blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. But most of us, even apart from Christ, people see the blessing of mourning. They see the, the health of mourning. But how could persecution be something that not only leads to flourishing, but that Jesus says we should rejoice in? And if we can get to the place of seeing persecution's blessedness, then we, especially here in the United States of America, have to ask if we want this blessing. Even if we can find it. Are there persecutions in our lives 
period, let alone persecutions that we could rejoice in. You can sense even from my introduction how far removed we are from what Jesus is saying. Going to the DMV, having a root canal, no air conditioning. This is suffering for us. But that's where we're at. And so we have to start to think about how strange this is and how foreign of a language this beatitude is to us and try to understand what Jesus is communicating. I don't pretend that I'm going to be able to do that completely this afternoon, but we'll try. I think I would say here in these final two Beatitudes, we find in a, in a special way how unique God's kingdom is and how often it runs counter to our way of thinking about, about flourishing and blessedness and about where true happiness is found. But we have to say that if, if these are the words of Jesus, and they are, and if uh, they are more true than our own thoughts and feelings, and they are, then we would do well to press in to think about how persecution for righteousness not only is a, is a part of the flourishing life, but is something that we should rejoice in. And so with that in mind, let's read again together with the blanks filled in for you. Uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Let's read this together as we continue to try to uh, memorize these verses so we can meditate on them and let them be a part of our lives. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The, the strangeness of these words is hard to grasp, partly because they're so different from how we think, but also because we've heard them so many times. Um, and so maybe it would be helpful to hear them in some words that are not as familiar. Let me give you two uh, different translations. Every translation, especially that's not just going word for word, is a bit of an interpretation. So I recognize that as I read these. Let me read two. The first is the Phillips translation. He says this, Happy are those who have suffered persecution for the cause of goodness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And what happiness will be yours when people blame you and ill-treat you and say all kinds of slanderous things against you for my sake? Be glad then. Yes, be tremendously glad, for your reward in heaven is magnificent. They persecuted the prophets before, you, before your time in exactly the same way. Another, the, the message says this, You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. 
the persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. As we begin thinking about these 8th and ninth Beatitudes, or maybe you want to call them 8A and 8B, or 8 and then explanation of 8, whatever you want to call them, the first thing we notice is that the, it, it's very similar to all the other Beatitudes, but also different. Um, the, the most similar, the most parallel would be verse 10, but then things start to, to change a little bit. As we think about the differences, notice first there's a progression. There's a, a progression that's happening within these two parallel Beatitudes. Jesus begins just like he did with all the, the other seven words of blessing. He begins, blessed are those. Uh, but then in verse 11, he speaks directly to his disciples that are gathered around him and he says, blessed are you. So he moves from speaking in the third person to speaking in the second person. Of course, we've known that he's talking about members of, of God's kingdom, but now he takes these statements from the, the hypothetical and he puts them right into the lives of the people that are sitting in front of, them, of him. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say nasty things about you because of me. And so the reality of what they're stepping into as followers of Jesus kind of starts to settle in. The progression doesn't end there because in these final Beatitudes, Jesus moves from description to command. For the first time, Jesus says that we're supposed to do something. We're commanded to rejoice and be glad in the midst of and even because of persecutions. From verses 3 to 9, there's this pattern. But when we get to these final two statements, there's this progression there's an expansion, there's a, 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 a pointing, a personal um, appeal, as it were, and even a call, a command to rejoice in these things. The other difference is found in the fact that the, the previous seven statements emphasize a, a character trait of, the member, of members of God's kingdom, but these focus on actions that are done against God's people. Did you notice that? The, the presence of righteousness is there. You're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Um, but the, the focus is on the fact that other people are persecuting those that are acting righteous and that the presence of that persecution is what makes our lives blessed and flourishing. What this seems to indicate is that when we are walking in the ways of God's kingdom, when we're poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, filled with meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, making peace, then all of that is the righteousness of the kingdom. And that kind of righteousness leads to persecution. Recalling the fourth beatitude, this is what John Stott says, those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. Isn't that interesting? Those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. And yet even the persecution that comes as a result of kingdom righteousness is blessed. 
as with being poor in spirit, persecution for righteousness marks us as true members of God's kingdom now in this present world. So seeing those kind of notes, let's begin by asking, as we often do with these Beatitudes, let's just ask, what is this persecution? Um, what's, what is this specific persecution that Jesus is talking about? At its most basic, persecution in general is, is hostility or harassment against a person or a group, usually because of political or racial or religious reasons. That's what Google or Wikipedia or Merriam-Webster will tell you. So very easy to understand that. So persecution comes on many people, not just Christians, right? People are persecuted all around the world for different reasons. But specifically here, Jesus is speaking of persecution for two very closely related reasons. You see them in verses 10 and 11. The first is persecution for righteousness sake. And the second is when you're being reviled, persecuted, and things spoken, evil spoken against you falsely. Why? On account of Jesus, because of Jesus. Persecution for righteousness sake and persecution because of Jesus. Maybe the same thing. If not, they're just, they're very, very similar. Persecution for righteousness sake. Let's think about that. It has to do with being mistreated or harmed for righteousness, for doing what is right, for doing what God approves of. That seems strange, doesn't it? Why would someone be persecuted for doing good? Why would kindness and grace and mercy and peacemaking and purity of heart, why would that bring the anger of others upon us? Jesus asked the same question in John 10, 32, as a, as a crowd prepared to kill him. He said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Why does, why does righteousness provoke persecution? 1 John 3, 11 through 13 takes us all the way back to the first instance of persecution for righteousness. So the first time that someone was killed because of their good works. This is what John writes in 1 John 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Conclusion, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because the righteousness of Abel exposed Cain's wickedness and lack of faith. Because Abel's goodness condemned Cain's wickedness. And rather than turn to God for the righteousness he didn't have, Cain decided to silence the goodness of his brother by killing him. It's what the message translation, that's how it put it. The truth was too close for comfort. Psalm 38:20 the psalmist says those who repay my good good with evil attack me for pursuing the good Proverbs 29:10 men of bloodshed hate a blameless man Proverbs 29:27 the an unjust man is detestable to the righteous and one whose way is upright is detestable to the wicked Jesus, Jesus is the only man who knew the full blessing of all the Beatitudes, and he shows us this kind of persecution as well. It, it was because of his goodness and because of his righteousness, because of his mercy and his love, 
that he was persecuted. Jesus, the, the light of the world, was in the world, blessing people. But as he says in John 3, men loved darkness more than light. And they chose that to rather snuff out the light than to come near it. Because if they came near it, what was going to happen, John 3? Their evil was going to be exposed. And they'd have to deal with it. And they didn't want to deal with it. We can hopefully start to see that it isn't simply goodness that is persecuted. Because we know in our, in our culture, even good deeds are, are lauded. Good deeds are celebrated. Watch the news sometimes. Uh, in your community, good deeds are, are praised. There's a goodness that, that people like, but usually it's a goodness that exalts human pride. But when our righteousness is tied to Jesus, when our good deeds point to God's holiness and in turn call people to repentance and faith, that repentance and faith that's at the heart of the gospel, then persecution and rejection start to show up because it makes people uncomfortable. Which is why members of God's kingdom are persecuted, not only for righteousness sake, but the second reason, they're persecuted on account of Jesus. Why are we, what is this persecution? It's persecution because of righteousness, but also because of Jesus. Jesus says this to his disciples in John 15, 18 to 21. Familiar words. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus tells us that the persecution that we will face as his followers is tied directly to the fact that we are his followers. It's always on account of his name is what it says. It's, it's enacted by those who don't know the Father. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by everyone on account of my name, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And then again, Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you over to be persecuted and killed and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name because of me. Your connection to me means that nobody's going to like you. So here's what's, what's clear about this persecution. It's not persecution for being obnoxious. It's not persecution for wrongdoing. Suffering for sinful actions and attitudes is not persecution. Look back at what Jordan read in 1 Peter 4. If we suffer for wrongdoing, that's, that's not persecution. This is not persecution for a religious fanaticism that leads to wickedness. It's not persecution for a cause in general. It is persecution for living a righteous life, that Je the righteous life that Jesus has called us to, and for being identified as one of his followers. That's the persecution that he's specifically talking about. For righteousness sake, and for the sake of my name. Because righteousness and Jesus confront people and make them uncomfortable. And if they don't want to turn in repentance, then they will come at us with persecution. The other thing that's becoming clear as we look at this is that this kind of persecution is to be expected. 
We said of the Beatitudes that they're not things that we can pick and choose, rather that they are, they are something that all who have entered into God's kingdom through faith in Jesus will be growing in. We will be growing in each of these things. So just as mercy is a non-negotiable attribute of every follower of Jesus, so is persecution. It's inevitable. Paul says it like this to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Every single person who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so, just as we long for all the other Beatitudes to be blossoming in our lives, there's a way in which we should also long for persecution. Or at least we should not be surprised or disheartened when it shows up. Even as I say that, let me admit that, that I don't totally get it. <laughs> I, I believe what Jesus says. I believe there is blessing found in suffering for righteousness and for his name. But that's a really hard pill to swallow, isn't it? And it's easy for me to say it up here. But this is not hypothetical for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So we should, we should be careful. But there are places where naming the name of Jesus or being baptized in his name can result in you being thrown out of your family or killed. We read of places where people are put in prison for speaking about Christ, where churches are burnt to the ground. We're gathering just like this. There's a threat that someone could come in and do violence to us. And so we who, for the most part, sit a pretty good distance from that kind of persecution, we should be, we should be careful in what we say, and we should recognize the, the soberness of what Jesus is saying, that there is a blessing here, but that we shouldn't be trite in saying, persecution is a gift and something we should seek after. But, even though I find this, it's, it's hard to understand. I take Jesus at his word and I trust that there is blessing even in persecution for his name and for righteousness. And I trust that we can rejoice. And in fact, he tells us why and how we can rejoice in persecution. So that's the next question I want to ask. We've kind of talked about what is persecution? What is this specific persecution? Let's talk about why is this blessed? Why is, why is persecution part of the flourishing life? Why should I rejoice at persecution? Three reasons that I see in, in verses 10 through 12. Verse 11 says, first of all, that we should rejoice because our reward is great. Because our reward is great. Persecution brings present pain, but there is a future reward for those who suffer for Christ and that reward far outweighs the pain of any persecution. Hebrews 11.26 tells us of Moses that he valued disgrace, disgrace for Christ above all the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Paul spoke of the hardships that he faced in service to Jesus. Some of those we saw as we went through the book of Acts very recently. But in 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, after talking about all the hardships, he said that we should not lose heart no matter how difficult things get because this momentary light affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says that the momentary light affliction is in fact preparing the reward that we're going to. It's, it's part of the preparation for what we're going to receive. If our hope is for this life alone, then we have every right to be miserable, especially in the midst of suffering and persecution. But we don't have hope only for this life. We do have hope for the future and for this great reward. And because of that, we can rejoice even in suffering. So we rejoice because we we are looking to the future and we find that there's a reward and that it's great. And secondly, we rejoice because we're in good company. We're in good company. That's verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The company we're in is that of the prophets who were before us. The saints of the Old Testament who showed us the joy that's found in following God's ways even when others reject you. And for now, now for we who are New Testament Christians, we can add to the Old Testament prophets the names of the apostles and the members of the early church. We can think of all of the faithful followers of Jesus through all generations who have suffered for the name of Jesus and know that we are a part of that group when we suffer as well. As I thought about why, why, why does that cause us to rejoice, I think it's because the, the power of persecution sometimes is shame. The, the, the power that, that weakens us is, is that persecution breeds shame in us. It brings embarrassment. It brings a sense that we are alone in the world. We naturally assume if there's pain and mockery that we've done something wrong. And therefore we belong to a company of people that have failed in some way. Failures suffer. Failures are experience pain. But in fact, when we suffer for Jesus' sake, we can look to the past and we can see all these other people who have gone before us, who have suffered for righteousness' sake. All these other people who have been persecuted for the name of Jesus. And we realize, oh, I'm not alone. I'm a part of this whole group of people that have suffered in this way. I don't have to be ashamed. I can take it as a, a badge of honor to suffer, to be a part of that group. When we're persecuted for righteousness sake, when we're persecuted for the name of Jesus, we stand with Old Testament saints like, like Joseph. Joseph's who, whose righteousness upset all the people around him, but who God never forsook. We stand with Moses. Moses who had a whole nation that sometimes hated him, including his own family, his brother and his sister, but yet who spoke with God face to face. We stand with Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah who who wept at the consequences that were coming on his people. Consequences that were coming in part because they didn't listen to the things that he was saying. We stand with Peter and the other apostles and disciples, men and women who were imprisoned and beaten and mocked and cast out and killed, but... Acts 5, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. We stand with them. 
when we are suffering. We stand with Paul, who, who lived his life ready to suffer and die for Jesus, and yet who was always upheld and encouraged by the risen Christ. We stand with early Christian martyrs like Polycarp or Justin Martyr. We stand with Perpetua. You ever heard of Perpetua? One of the early Christian martyrs who was a woman. She was a new mother taken to jail and her child was born either in jail or soon before she was cast into prison. And so her child was taken. She did. She was a new mom and never. She, she never nursed her child because they took the baby from her, and she was killed in the arena. Not long after becoming a new mom, because she refused to deny Christ. That's who we stand with. We stand with the reformers. We stand with guys like Tyndale who wanted you to have a Bible, and so he was burned at the stake. Guys like Luther and Calvin and Huss. When you're persecuted for righteousness sake, that's the group you're a part of. We stand with all the modern mission movement. People like um, William Carey, who sparked so many people to go to the mission field. And people like Jim Elliott, who reminded us that it's not foolish to give what you can't keep. To gain what you can't lose. That reward that he was looking for, that we all look for. So we reject the shame of persecution because that's good company to be in. I want to stand with Jim Elliott. I want to stand with Perpetua. I want to stand with Peter. I want to stand with Jeremiah and Joseph. That's good, that's good company. Don't be ashamed when persecution and mockery comes at you because of righteousness or because of Christ. You're not a fool. Now, we don't face physical persecution and death like that for the most part, but we know that any suffering for the sake of Jesus puts us in those ranks. You might face mockery from family or friends or neighbors. They might spread lies about you. They might not see the compassion that's behind your righteousness, the, pa- the compassion that's behind your calls for them to come to Christ. They take it as condemnation, and so they mock you and they revile you. Maybe you are kept out of certain circles of friends because of your righteousness. They don't want you around because they feel guilty when they hang out with you. Jesus is working uh, in you and he confronts their sin. You might even be mocked by them. You might even be mocked by people at church because of your conviction and your righteousness and your commitment. Maybe you don't get a raise or a promotion because your boss knows that you're not going to participate in the unethical practices that happen close to the top. And so you suffer for righteousness' sake. You suffer for standing with Jesus. Even in these kind of persecutions, even though we're not thrown into an arena, even though we're not killed on a cross, we know that we stand in good company. We stand with the men and women that have come before us, even in these small persecutions that are in our lives. And ultimately, who do we stand with? We stand with Jesus. And so we rejoice in suffering for righteousness sake, thirdly, because it shows our present place in God's kingdom and in Christ. We, we rejoice because of the reward. We rejoice because we're in good company and we rejoice because it shows our present place in God's kingdom and in Christ. 
I say present place in God's kingdom because of verse 10, the promise that bookend from verse three, for theirs is present place, present, present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All the other promises are future, but this says if you're persecuted right now, you are a member of God's kingdom and you are in Christ. We can think about the suffering of Jesus in a couple different ways. Think about it first in this way, in a gospel way that Jesus suffered for his own righteousness to pay the penalty for my unrighteousness. Isn't that amazing? Jesus suffered for righteousness sake. Not once did Jesus suffer for his own unrighteousness. Never. But he was persecuted and he was mocked for his righteousness. And he and by, by dying and suffering for his righteousness, he is able to pay for my unrighteousness. He is able to take the penalty for my unrighteousness because he never was unrighteous himself. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying that you need to suffer persecution to earn salvation. Persecution doesn't gain your salvation. We trust in Christ that Jesus has suffered on our behalf and our faith in him brings forgiveness to us. So the persecution that Jesus faced for righteousness sake is part of what purchases our salvation. But a second way to think about this persecution of Jesus for righteousness sake is that he shows us how to suffer in the same way. In fact, he says it reveals that we're followers of Jesus when we do suffer. Can I let another preacher draw this together for us. I stumbled upon a sermon by George Whitfield. Here's an old guy from the first great awakening. And this is what he said about Jesus and about suffering. Follow him, follow Jesus from the manger to the cross and see whether any persecution was like that which the Son of God, the Lord of glory underwent whilst here on earth. How was he hated by wicked men? How often would that hatred have excited them to lay hold of him had it not been for fear of the people? How was he reviled, counted and called a blasphemer, a wine-bibber, a Samaritan, nay, a devil, and in one word had all manner of evil spoken against him falsely? What contradiction of sinners did he endure against himself? How did men separate from his company and were ashamed to walk with him openly? Insomuch that he once said to his own disciples, will you also go away? Again, how was he stoned, thrust out of the synagogues, arraigned as a deceiver of the people, a seditious and pestilent fellow, an enemy of Caesar, and as such scourged, blindfolded, spit upon, and at length condemned and nailed to an accursed tree? Thus was the master persecuted, thus did the Lord suffer, and the servant is not above his master, nor the disciple above his Lord." If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, says the blessed Jesus. And again, every man that is perfect, a true Christian, must be, his, must be as his master or suffer as he did. For in all these things, our Lord Jesus has set us an example that we should follow his steps. And therefore, far be it that any who live godly in Christ Jesus should henceforward expect to escape suffering persecution. So we expect persecution because we're followers of Jesus. And we don't just expect it. Jesus tells us we are to 
rejoice in it. We rejoice because of the reward that is to come, because of this great cloud of witnesses that we are a part of, and because of our identification with Jesus, our Savior, in the fact that we suffer. So a few questions to close us. First, are we thinking or living our lives in such a way that says we disagree with Jesus? Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Are we thinking or living our lives in such a way that says we disagree with Jesus? That we think persecution and suffering are a sign not of flourishing and blessing, but of failure and and cursedness? Do we love the praises of men more than the praises of God such that we do everything we can to avoid persecution? John Stott says, we should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather be surprised if it does not. We need to remember the complimentary woe which Luke records. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Universal popularity was as much the lot of the false prophets as persecution was of the true. I'll say that again. Universal popularity was as much the lot of the false prophets as persecution was of the true prophets. Along those lines, a second set of questions rooted in the fact that that the persecution spoken of here is for righteousness sake. Are we avoiding righteousness? Or maybe are we not allowing our connection to Christ to be seen as the source of our righteousness? Or are we allow, uh, may, may, we might not be suffering. You could be living a, a righteous life, a good life, and not be suffering because your righteousness is something that you're allowing to exalt yourself rather than Christ that we're not living in such a way that says who I am and what I do ultimately is because of Christ. And apart from him, I can do nothing. And instead, we're allowing our righteousness to make us look good. And no one has a problem with that because they all want to look good too. But a righteousness that finds its root in Christ is confrontational. It's condemning. Something to process with me on. A final question, do we pray for and rejoice with the persecuted church around the world? We we don't face this as much, but there are people here and now that do. And these brothers and sisters of ours around the world keep us grounded in Jesus and they reveal what true blessedness is. We would do well to keep them at the forefront of our minds and to be praying for them. If we're going to believe these final Beatitudes, that there's blessing in persecution for righteousness sake, blessing in persecution on account of Jesus, then it's going to take faith. Faith is the key. And so let me close with the words of Hebrews 11. It begins in verses 1 and 2. It reminds us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Then lists many people by name, people that we are a part of, that are this cloud of witness that surrounds, witnesses that surrounds us. And then he closes 
in verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted, mistreated. of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here's the encouragement to close. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted.